Rugby League European Federation podcast and this week we are joined by Raymond Safi. Raymond, how are you? Good, thanks. Yourself? Yeah, I'm very well, Raymond. Whereabouts are you joining? Whereabouts in the world are you joining us, Raymond? I'm joining you from uh, Altrincham, Manchester. Right, and and you've recently moved there, I believe, uh, with with your family coming out of uh, out of Lebanon. Is that right? That's correct. Been here for about two months now. Okay, and is the family all settled in? All settled in, and are getting accustomed to the Manchester cold weather. Well, that, that, there's going to be some really big differences, isn't there, from 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 Beirut and Lebanon? There's some pros and cons. I think the weather's the one that probably is not the good one. But I remember you. T- I think you told me at one point your boys were were asking you, you know, when does the electricity is? When's the piece when the electricity are on? Because obviously in Beirut there were some limits, wasn't there? You know. Yeah. So they're, they're quite amazed you could have unlimited electricity. Nah, very true. Like that. it's just getting adjusted to the normal lifestyle yeah. here. Like compared yeah. to Beirut, where you had um, power shedding, uh, when you can turn your electricity on to heat your water or not, because generators usually don't have enough ampage to heat your water, and and you got outages, and yeah. no, it's just uh, getting used to it. So the kids now have adjusted to all that. But I suppose, as you say in Beirut, you had li- unlimited sun, which is certainly not necessarily what you're going to have in Manchester. Very true. Very true. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, Raymond, we're we're going to focus on your your, your journey. Uh, with 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 Lebanon and, and actually the wider Middle East and, and Africa, um, but the first question I always ask somebody: What is your very first memory of rugby league? My very first memory of rugby league was probably 1984, Parramatta versus Bulldogs in the grand final. My family were all Bulldog supporters, and I was the only Parramatta supporter. And the only reason I chose Parramatta is because the school team that I was playing for had Parramatta colour jersey. So I automatically chose them. Then we had a bet, whoever wins the grand final, that they, others have to convert. And unlucky, Parramatta lost and I had to convert to Bulldogs. Ah, right. Okay. So, so whereabouts were you based at that time? In uh, we, were, we were living in Burwood and I was going to a school called St. Michael's. Right. And uh, the school team was blue and yellow jerseys. And I remember playing for the school team. Then after that, we went off to Belfield and played with Info Federals and the, the local schools and high schools. Okay. Okay. So just give us a, a quick uh, resume of how from 1984 you find yourself at the beginning of the century in Lebanon and getting involved with Lebanon Rugby League. Uh, in 2000, I uh, decided to go off on a holiday to Lebanon. And while I was in Lebanon, um, I was also, because I was a civil engineer, I was doing the family home, building a property for the family to holiday in. Uh, I had finished resources and the job incomplete, so I said, it's time to go back home and get back to work. And I got captured at the, the military, by the military at the airport, saying, oh, we've been looking for you. Your, your father's uh, registered you as a Lebanese citizen, so you are required to do Lebanese service, military service. Okay. Now, this is all news to me. As I said, I'm Australian, wasn't born in the country, and I've been residing overseas for the last 20 years. I said, regardless, though, they quoted some laws that you had to, um, after three months, if you don't leave the country and re-exit, you're, you're automatically a dual citizen of that country, and you are, all the laws are applied to you, and you still have to do your service. Right. Okay, so that must have come a bit of a surprise. Massive culture shock and a surprise. 
Okay, so how how long did you do your military service for? Uh, I I did um, thirteen months. Right. For some okay. reason, I extended by a month, not knowing because I didn't know how to read or write Arabic. Ah, okay. So that so, was just sign any forms that they gave me. So I thought I'm signing my exiting, but I was continue on. Yeah. Okay. All right. So so at this point, then. Talk to you around about this time how you got involved with Lebanon Rugby League. Yeah, that would have been around 2002 uh, when I was in conscripted in the military. I saw on TV uh, a game being played, Lebanon versus uh, France. Oh, so great, Rugby League's here. Let me, because um, they're talking about joining uh, the, the game in the country and establishing it with the universities and the military had a side. So, right, I said, I'm in the military. Perfect way to finish off your year, just do rugby league and go do uh, military service. So I rang up um, the general, uh, Suhail Khouri, who was uh, the chairman of the Olympic Committee, and he was also the uh, in charge in the military. So he says, right, tomorrow I need you to show up on Monday training session at the Hades uh, sports field inside the military base. And I rock up there, and uh, and I meet Danny Kazanjian. Right, wow! <laughs> it's just it's, so. In some ways, doing military service helped you get involved. Is that yes? Fair? That basically introduced me to it. But right. Danny, had, after a while, Danny had told me that he had received a call from that general as well. So and I captured you in Australia. Come take him. Right. And obviously, yeah, I mean, with your background in rugby league, a good knowledge of it, obviously that would be you know, be very helpful to people, you know, uh, taking the game forward in Lebanon. Yeah, no, because I was um, one of the few out there that understood the game. So okay. I played a, a, a role in establishment after the military. I signed up with the universities and joined the federation to develop the game. Right. Okay. You know, we're in the early stages of, of setting up a, a committee at that stage. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and so just tell us, what was your role in those early years? Early well, years? Uh, different roles. <laughs> up, in, up in 2006, I was just a coach in the military and the universities and try to spread the game to the school systems. So we were just trying to get as many teams up and running. Uh, then we did a coaching course uh, around 2006 and became qualified before we were just going off handbooks that we were given from, uh, I think, RFL and New South Wales Rugby League. Okay. Then uh, after 2006, I was, uh, I was appointed as a coach coordinator for the Federation and I was a board member as well. And uh, 2010, um, when Danny Kazanjian uh, left the... LRLF, I took over as chief operating officer. Then the year after that, I was CEO, where we restructured when we got full membership. And just, just on that period, 202 to 210, what were some of the highlights that you remember in particular? Uh, some of the highlights. The highlights were all negative uh, impacts, like the bombings, uh, driving through uh, uh, war zones to get to training. That's all I can remember of that era, the, the conflicts, assassinations, and us trying to get the game going around that, that, uh, those issues. It, it must have 
built some resilience though around those involved because those you know for for many of us understanding that impact as you say of the instability unst- around the country um but to still be trying to develop a sport you've got to be pretty resilient to do that and and, and committed very true i was very committed to seeing this go through because i had spent a lot of time yeah. and sacrificed a lot for my family as well to see this go through so i wanted to make sure it was going to keep going down that road and and then again lebanese are resilient people so it's not it's not easy for them to give up on things they've rebuilt beirut so many times like uh just recently now the explosion you see them continue on rebuilding people haven't given up hope with their current uh, political situation and uh, issues that they've got now going okay so we just pick up from 210 in particular then when you you know you talked about being the chief operating officer and then the ceo what at that time were you also was your role with european federation i i was appointed as um around that time as well as the middle east north africa regional right. director as well so right. dual roles trying to develop the game in other countries as well and build clusters according to the RELF strategy Okay, so let's focus on Lebanon then. So you take up in two or ten, you take over from Danny, who, who, who's um, you know moved on to the general manager of the European Federation. Um, what, what, what's your what's your memories of 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 what was needing to be done done to build on what the work that the Danny had done? Uh, there was um, we were at our highs after that after 2010 up to about 2011 12. After 2012, that was our turning point where things started to get rocky for us with the political situations, some universities uh, having issues, uh, sanctions being taken against certain players who affected teams continuing on. Also, the loss of um, Bank of Beirut Championship, uh, the, the sponsor. We lost Bank of Beirut as a major sponsor. So that also had an impact on, on the game. Going forward, like it was very difficult to raise funds in in the country because there was a lot of um, political uh, instability at that time as well. And uh, then trying to find a a medium between the Australian community and the Lebanese community in Beirut to get things operating smoothly. So that was very challenging at most of the times. Okay, but you talked about so that those peak moments in two eleven, two or twelve. Just just describe what what sort of activity levels of activity were going on. Make lends you to say that. Well, we had an increase in teams. Uh, we were restructuring to have a, a second division uh, of uh, the current system. Clubs merging into the into the community. So that was uh, like there was a pathway built, and we're trying to expand that. But yeah. then. Uh, the loss of the, the sponsor and the political instability around 2012, 2013, there was a lot of assassinations. So that, that saw a lot of people leave the country, uh, games being uh, postponed. Yeah. And Dan, Danny talks to a lot about how he saw for some people got involved in rugby league, it was positively life-changing. Presumably you've, you've seen some of that happen as well for, for, for people, young people in particular. Yes. Yes, definitely. Um, a, a lot of um, the outer Beirut areas, you know, the kids in the in the dep- deprived areas where a lot of um, conflict happened there. So I remember one kid where he 
chose not to go work with his father in some uh, store and wanted to continue to have an education, to have a better life and play rugby league and go further in life with, uh, with what he had learned from the game. Okay. And there's some other stories that you can recall of people who, you know, rugby league was a lifeline to them or took them further than perhaps they thought they could? Uh, I remember a few kids saw the the rugby league community as a family to them. So it took them out of uh, the zones that they were in, the trouble areas, uh, just people they can rely on for help and support. Sure, sure. So it's obviously... Um, when you start to move further into that last that last decade, um, obviously um, making the, the 2017 World Cup was a big thing, wasn't it, in terms of Lebanon? Yes, that was a, a, a big uh, achievement for Lebanon. Yeah. Like uh, one of the only sports that qualified into a World Cup and participated yep. in, in a World Cup. We've had other teams uh, in World Cup, but I don't think like how Lebanon Rugby League did. Right. And, and, and tell us, what, what impact does or does it not make in terms of perhaps government links or sponsors or impact back in, in Lebanon, you know? Uh, because there's a bit of a perception, you, know, you go to the World Cup, that'll release all this interest and funds. And there, some of that's true, but some of it's not quite, you know, as it seems. So give, give us an idea of what happened for Lebanon qualifying for 2017 World Cup. Well, when Lebanon qualified, the government didn't pay much attention to the to the sport or to the federation. The thing is with the, with the Lebanese situation is that all the sports are politically affiliated. Uh, in our case, we weren't politically affiliated or aligned to any uh, parts or groups of the country. So that made it more difficult for us to get recognition uh, from the communities there. Like every time you went up to a TV network to say, right, we're on the World Cup, can you air us? They say, right, who are you board and who are you affiliated with? As soon as we say we are non-sectarian, non-political, oh, sorry, we got no business. They're not going to help us. It's not going to create any awareness for us. So we, we would lose that opportunity as well. And the government saying they didn't um, particularly fund the World Cup. We didn't get any funding from the World Cup. Right. From the sports ministry, they just gave you your annual logistic grant, and that was always the following year, never the, in the same year. And, you had to jump through a thousand paperwork hoops to, to get this grant to be released here. Right. Okay, so to, to talk us a little bit about then, obviously, um, for many countries, it is a balancing act between their, their, their uh, playing uh, community and, and, and uh, official community in, in their country and uh, the exiled, you know, um, traditionally in, in Australia and particularly for Lebanon. You know, what, what's, there has been challenges, some of them have been publicly known, but you know, um, tell us how you how you sought to manage them and, and, and bring parties together for the good of Lebanon. Where do, where do you start in that? Like, having the locals, they're the lifeline of the game. They're the ones that keep the game and the brand going and the, the, the status of the federation moving. The Australians played a role in on the international side of things. So trying to find a balance between international players and your local players to play international. That was the challenging bit. Because whenever you ever spoke to Australians or the players in Australia, they would automatically think that the locals weren't aware of how to run the game or don't understand the game or how the logistics of a game is run or how a federation is supposed to be run. And when you spoke about international, 
the, the local players thought they were up to the standards. But uh, mm. only a few people had the opportunity to test themselves and found the difficulties of playing at that high level. And I remember in 2015 where we went um, to the qualifiers in South Africa. And we had a local player participate in the, as a 17-man squad member. And I remember somebody asking, which one's your local player? Like, they couldn't pick him up. But, but this guy had 10 years of investing into him to reach that stage. So we needed more resources to invest into locals and needed more out of Australia to come in and help with that. But trying to get that was very difficult because you got people in Australia who had work commitments. The financing of it was very expensive as well. Sure. But it's interesting, as you say, it could be done. It took a long time. But actually, yes. with the right investment, it, it, it can be actually achieved. Very true. Very true. Like, I, I remember in the last, uh, around 2016, 17, 15 as well, we had um, coaches come out from Australia to come out and do programs in Lebanon, prepare a squad to play international fixtures and work with the locals to increase their abilities to play at a World Cup. Right. Okay. And so, obviously, the 21 World Cup is coming up. Uh, and whilst you won't be the, the CEO or chief exec, obviously, hopefully, Lebanon will, um, you know, uh, put on a good show. Yes, definitely. I wish them all the best. And hopefully they can um, perform as good as they did in the, the, the 17 World Cup. But they yeah. do have their challenges up against them. They're in a, a an area where there's least uh, Lebanese community members to rely on, like they had in Sydney. Sure, yeah, different, obviously different, different uh, expat community, yeah, compared to, to Australia. So let, let's go back to 210 then. You've got this dual role, Raymond. Um, just just talk us first of all, because it's sometimes not easy to have a role in a country and a role in the wider um, confederation or region, you know, and, and people, you know, maybe just saying, uh, uh, how do you balance that out? What, what, what was your way of, of making sure that no one said, well, you're spending too much time with Lebanon or you're spending too much time with other new countries? How did you go about that? It's, it's a balance. And it is a balance. So it's ba I was basically doing seven days a week, um, almost uh, 18 hours a day most times. So uh, you, I, I balance, I give one day this, like I do a priority of, of work tasks that needed to be done and I prioritised it to make sure that nothing was missed, no deadlines were missed, that everything was on track. And uh, during the off-season, this is where you, you could focus more on the, the regional role and go out and visit and do the workshops with the members that needed the work. And during the season, your focus was on the local championship being continued and played. And at the same time, try to keep your regional role maintaining as well. Yeah. So just in 2010, what was the state of play in, in that Middle East and North Africa region? Who, who, who was, who, which countries were having rugby league at the time? Around that time, the, the key players would have been uh, Saudi Arabia, Palestine. Uh, we had Morocco in and out around that time. Mm -hmm. There was uh, a, a new establishment started up. They participated in fixtures. And we started to see other regions, uh, other members in the region starting to form. We had Qatar uh, being formed as well, UAE off yep. and on until they had their issues and uh, the manager got arrested. Yeah. 
And tell tell me, just obviously one of the keys is there's some like every country there's different cultures. So when you get that that phone call or email from someone saying I'd like to start rugby league in X country, what what's some of the first advice or first questions you ask them? Uh, first thing I'd ask them if they knew anything about rugby league, just to find out why are they specifically going down that route. So if they've got no knowledge, so I know I basically have to teach them every single thing about the game, how to do the governance, how to, how to play the ball, how to coach, how to referee. So just so I understand from where they're coming from in a sporting aspect so I can guide them. Okay. So just uh, obviously, um, if you take the Africa, obviously you see like Morocco um, slightly in and out, and that's been for a long time, obviously we're well embodied nowadays. But just talk us through someone like uh, the story of Nigeria, for example, who, who've just become affiliate members um, of, of the International Rugby League. Tell, tell us about their story, because you're probably going to know it from that really opening moment. Yeah, Nigeria was an interesting one. They also had an establishment around 2012, 13, I think. Mm-hmm. And then they, they, they weren't specifically rugby league people. They were just businessmen taking an opportunity, thinking that they're going to be able to develop a game and also get funds out of it somehow. But they, they, were, they were dormant for a while. Then we've got this new group coming in who was led by Adi Adebisi, ex-Super yeah. League. And that also added a lot to because you knew that somebody knew the game and understood it. And he understands of the commitment that's required to get it going. And they put a board together and had a board of trustees that supported them who are English expats as well. So you knew that this was going to be successful because there's people who were going to invest their time into this to see it go through. And uh, we did have our challenging moments when they took on more than what they could um, they can buy it. But uh, we, in the end, they managed to pull through and get it all happening and uh, uh, entertaining yeah. event. Just to go back to that first group, though, that first group that you said that the business people, and obviously, you know, they wanted to get rugby league going. But they weren't necessarily rugby league people, and sort of, obviously, had they had a sort of um, commercial, not necessarily commercial, but they looked upon it maybe as a profit center. Um, which is not nothing necessarily negative, as long as rugby league participation also increases. What's your sort of way of sort of um, almost um, trying to find out people's motivations and and and, and understand um, therefore how you interact with them? You know, what what sort of because often you you wouldn't necessarily be able to go and meet these people in person. No, no. Uh, the first thing, well, when they're interacting with you, if they firstly come out to you and say, right, uh, are you going to be funding me for any activities? You know that these people are in there just for the money. So you, you have to change your approach to getting the game developed with them and try to make them understand that they don't need to be self-sustainable before anybody can invest into them. Yep. Then you find out how genuine they are to develop the game or not. And that's what happened with the, the first lot because the, they were constantly requesting finances and they weren't able to put any activities on before any finances were able to be given to them. Sure. And so let's think about another country, Ghana is another one that obviously um, has has gone on quite a journey as well in, in the last 10 years. 
Yeah, yeah, is a unique. Uh, it was one of our first West African countries to get established, and, and they started off quite differently to any other organisation. We had a UK sports grant given to us to establish rugby league in West Africa. Sierra Leone and Ghana were the two countries that we reached out to, and uh, we had hired a development officer who knew nothing about the game, uh, uh, educated him. Then uh, when, when the funding stopped, then they were supposed to be self-reliant. They couldn't do that themselves. And uh, a new group came in. We also found some uh, investors to support and develop the game from England, who've been uh, supporting them ever since. And ever since the last board has taken over, you see an increase in activity. Yeah. Interesting. So... So the person, the development officer that you, you put into Ghana, how did you identify somebody but they had no rugby league knowledge? So what, what, what was a sort of, how did, how did that go about? You know, what other criteria were you looking, you know, the really key one of rugby league knowledge, but then what other criteria did you use to identify him to be the right person? Uh, Ghana was at, the, at that time being uh, overseen by the RLEF general manager at the time. Uh, before we merged into Middle East Africa. So I wasn't involved in the process of um, identifying that person, but I believe uh, from discussions that there was a, an advert, a job uh, advert sent out, two people or quite a few people applied for the position and they interviewed and the best person was appointed. Mm -hmm. Okay. And what other sort of um, particular successes do you look back on in Middle East and Africa in the last 10 years that you think have been, have been important for the, for the, for the Confederation? There's, the successes that we've had was the, the MIA championships being played and uh, the IRL and RLF identifying that w there is a region now that you can have your international fixture and a World Cup qualifying berth. So that's a success for the region. Before, there was no qualifying berth for the region. Uh, Lebanon was the only one, I think, at the time, qualifying for European groups. And they were unsuccessful up until their last attempt in 2015, where they qualified for a MIA, MIA berth. Yeah. And so you must have also been, you know, you talked about, you know, you have been on a number of visits to, to countries over the years. So, again, it, it's it must be quite... A, interesting to have been liaising with people for say uh, you know a few months or a year or whatever and then you actually get to meet them in person and and see the environment they're working in could you just give us an idea of some of the environments that you've encountered you know to to develop rugby league within uh like africa in general like when you go out there you, you find fields plenty of fields there but there's very rare you find grass on there you'd mm. see them playing full contact on on, on, on soil with rocks and pebbles on there. Like that, that would shock you, any Westerner saying this is unsafe, but for them, this is normal. So they don't have the luxury of playing on grass. They just get out there and play it and enjoy themselves. They don't worry about the scrapes that they're gonna get from this round surface. Uh, just just the, the, also the poverty that some of these people live in. Uh, it's also, you know, makes you think about uh, where you live and how you take life for granted with what you've got. Yeah, sure. 
And you must have seen some people met them at the very start of their journeys in some of these countries. And now you see them, uh, not all of them still involved, but a number of them still involved and, and, and progress things. That must be, you know, give us a few stories of, of people who you've seen progress. And cause that must be really great to see that journey. Yeah, no, it's, it's been uh, good seeing them. Uh, also, their lives change, like uh, with, with, with Ghana, for example. Like uh, we, we had Sylvester before Wellington. Then we moved on from him. There was, uh, uh, we sent Sam out, an English student, to redrive the and interest in, the, in Ghana, which he did. And he met um, some great kids out there who he brought into the game who are now currently running it, like Jafaru. Like, I remember meeting him for the first time. I've spoken to him on the phone and knew nothing of him. But when I see him out there on the ground and what he's achieved now, like, he's, he's capable of running an organisation on his own now without guidance from RLEF. He can just easily report back to us what he's doing. He's got a strategy and he knows how to stick to it. So he was, he's done really well. It's like to see him go from where he was to where he is now. Mm. Okay. And is there any of the countries that you particularly also think, uh, you know, 10 years ago weren't even on the radar, but now they're, they've got rugby league and, and, and they've, they're doing okay for themselves? What, what other countries come to mind? Uh, what other countries? Like, uh, like who, who would have thought Cameroon had rugby league? That's one that you'd, you'd think. Uh, like Libya is another one. They've got activities happening there and they're also doing it through civil unrest as well. So they, they can easily relate to Lebanon, how they were getting the game going through civil unrest as well. Like you wouldn't think of that. Ethiopia, like who would have known that there was a town in Makeli in a school, Robinson School playing rugby league. Sure. And tell us about the Palestine story, because that's, that's always one that will, will bring some interest as well, given, you because know, if you talk about political unrest, you know, um, obviously, another country that has uh, had a very difficult, difficult time in that regard. Yeah, that, that, that's a very unique story. That one. There's activity happening in Lebanon, part of the refugee schools uh, system. Uh, their players also linked with the local clubs as well. They've got activity happening in in in, in Palestine itself, in Bethlehem. So. You wouldn't think that that's been played then. And you can't get these guys to meet anywhere and play because of the conflict that Lebanon's with, uh, with their neighbours at the moment. Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, so uh, what, what stands out for you in the last uh, 10 years, Raymond, that you look back and you, you know, there's been challenges, you say, but there's also, you know, to achieve and despite those challenges, there must be some real good memories there. Oh, there's a lot of good memories, a, a lot of um, friends along the way, you know, you become real close to them, your family, you re rely on them for support, for advice. So th there is a, a nice network there that I've, that I've had over the, over the years and a lot of good memories, like um, just uh, when Lebanon qualified, that was a joyful moment, like the, all, all that hard work you've been putting in to see them qualify. We've also been there for the World Cup, seeing how successful it was. You know, that is also rewarding to say. You went, we went into a World Cup campaign having zero dollars allocated to us to end up being a successful at the end and in a positive. But that is also uh, some, something good that you think 
Good. Any others that come to mind, either in Lebanon or across the whole confederation? Uh, nothing comes off mind, but a lot, a lot of times I sit there and just remember the tours that we went on and the people, the, the congresses that we, we have in various countries. So these constantly come to mind, like now, where we are now in COVID, we can't yep. leave, we can't visit, we can't do anything. So you think of these more now. <laughs> Yeah, and on the tours, I mean, we've heard some incredible stories about uh, travel arrangements. You know, um, Jovan was talking about from Serbia to, to Lebanon, uh, the Great Britain student pioneers, um, you know, two or three days of travel. Um, you know, it, it's not uncommon. So tell us some of the, 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 the um, perhaps bus journeys or otherwise that you, you've undertaken with, with groups of players to, to, to get somewhere. Uh, I remember the... One tour, we took down the 16s to, to Qatar. Our first attempt was that we were sent back home from the airport because our visas weren't authorised from uh, Qatar. And uh, then the second attempt, we had uh, our visas. So we were all at the airport crossing the borders thinking, oh, my God, are we going to get returned now? Is there going to be something wrong with the visa? Because sometimes you get some complicated visa uh, issues that you have to, to deal with. No, but thank God that was uh, easily resolved and, and we had no issues after the second attempt because we had spoken to the, the embassy in Beirut and we, the, our host completed their paperwork that they were supposed to do in the, originally. Uh, in Morocco, we had some interesting stories there, like being locked out of a stadium. Here you've got a national team with you and, and you, you arrive at a stadium and you see it closed and because our rugby union say no, they haven't been given permission to the rugby league lot to play rugby league. Uh, yeah. The, the most interesting one was the Cameroon story. Sure. Like Tell them us driving by, these guys driving two, three days on a bus to get to a fixture. They got off the bus and 10 hours later they were in it playing a game. And, and on their way back home was the interesting bit where they were stopped by the local police. And then they had uh, bandits on the road trying to rob them as well. Yeah. Like uh, being threatened to be in prison because they didn't have visas, but, but the paperwork was all correct and it's just so corrupt the system that they just needed to be bribed up. And the poor Cameroonians probably had uh, said, no, we're not doing this. We're, we're legally allowed to travel through the country. Ended up in, a, in that situation. Yeah. Yeah, remarkable commitment and remarkable sacrifices, which again puts things into context uh, for for many of us. Um, just on rugby union, Raymond, you mentioned it there. You know, for many countries, it has been a, a, a problem. You know, whether it be as a competitor, which is you know under competitive sport for, for for participants, or more so some of the political elements. What's what's been your experience in in in, in uh, Middle East Africa? Nearly all all our members in the Middle East Africa have issues with rugby union. Our most recent now is the Cameroon lot, who've received notification from the Rugby Union Federation saying that they are to cease activities and they can only play or participate in any rugby league events under their umbrella and their approvals. So that's uh, something now that uh, Cameroon's been dealing with. We're constantly trying to educate the locals who see rugby league as a threat, and that they are losing players to the other game, to rugby league. So 
it's it's challenging for us because we're many miles away trying to get get them the support that they need to overcome their issues. Yeah. And and um because you'll have been there many occasions explaining to people there's two codes of rugby. Uh, exactly. And in some ways that can be helpful at times though, because then it, it's the same shape of ball, it's just slightly different rules. But other times, as you say, politically, perhaps where rugby union's been there first, it can cause cause problems. So um, not an easy easy one at times to explain and educate people about, is it? No, no, it's, it's never easy, especially when you've got politically driven agendas behind it all. Mm. Yeah. yeah. No matter what you say or do or how many uh, supporting governments you get to, to respond with them, they're still mindset. This is how it's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Raymond. Well, listen, that's that's a fascinating journey that you've been on, and and, and you know you, you have highlighted a number of challenges, but the reality is there's a lot more going on, um, certainly in Middle East and Africa than there was, in, you know, right now. Obviously, COVID apart, compared to 2010. So you must look back with pride. Um, and look at that journey, as you say, and, and the memories of the friendships, which is a great and, and a really important part of it. And alongside that, just think, well, actually, there's a lot more pins in the map with rugby league than there was 10 years ago. Must be satisfying. No, very satisfying. And also knowing that there's still so much more that can be done to get our game out there and developed and further reach. Like Africa is so big, Middle East is huge. So many members still are, are waiting to join yeah sure because uh, I, I no doubt you're still you know each month or fairly regularly still fielding emails from somebody just popping up in a country you know um and then you start that process again of okay what do you know about rugby league what are your intentions you've got to do x y and z first of all you know to prove your credibility but is, is that just an ongoing process yeah it's ongoing just um last week we had a conference call with a representative from Togo, they're looking at starting up rugby league. And uh, funny enough, he's an ex-rugby league player from Lebanon who loved the game and he's out in Togo now and he wants to develop it and pass on what he had learnt in Lebanon. Oh, well, there you go. And was it a player you knew of? Did you know the, the, the person? Yes, yeah, we, we knew of him. And also another player that was also in Lebanon who's also gone back to Ghana now is has gotten involved in the organisation there as well. So he's adding to what he's learnt to that organisation. So it's good to see that um, people that you've helped along the way are coming back to give back to the game as well. Sure. Well, listen, Raymond, um, it's been fascinating to hear about your journey um, and, and long may it continue. Um, obviously, not necessarily, you're not in a, a role, a formal role with Lebanon now. You're fully uh, focused on Middle East, North, and uh, sorry, Middle East and Africa. Um, and um, yeah, we look forward to more pins in the map appearing and, and yeah, having attended the Middle East Africa Championships in 2019, um, yeah, some sensational athletes out there, obviously learning uh, still a lot about the game, but yeah, it's, it's got great potential. So thank you, Raymond, for sharing that with us. Thank you, Graham. Okay, everybody, that wraps us up for them, this this um, interview with Raymond there. Um, obviously, life's getting a bit more difficult, I think, for everybody around around Europe and the whole world with, with COVID. So I hope you remain safe yourselves, your families, your rugby league communities and your overall uh, nations. Thank you.